It's no secret signing a contract to fight another human in a cage is already pretty risky. Who knows what could happen? You could lose an eye, break your leg, you might even shit yourself. After years of grinding, you might finally get somewhere and then it becomes even more important to take the fights that make sense for your finances and your career. But guess what? There's plenty of fighters out there who said screw what's sensible, am I right? And they accepted fights that, if this was a scary movie, would have had you screaming at your screen. I'm Balian from MMA On Point and these are 10 insanely risky fights taken with everything to lose. Number 10. Gegard Mousasi versus Ilir Latifi As one of the most decorated athletes in combat sports, the news that Gegard Mousasi would be joining the UFC after the Strikeforce merger was music to fans' ears. In his career, he'd managed to win the Cage Warriors Middleweight Championship, the Dream Middleweight Grand Prix, and the Strikeforce Light Heavyweight Belt. And when he entered the UFC in 2013, he was still the reigning Dream Light Heavyweight Champion. Why is all this important? Well, when he arrived, the UFC gave him an appropriate matchup. The number two ranked light heavyweight at the time, Alexander Gustafsson. He was on a six-fight win streak. It was a great fight for the European scene, and they were going to give them their own fight night in Stockholm, Sweden. And the winner was going to fight John Jones. So, yeah, pretty good. But unfortunately, just one week before the event, Alex had to pull out. I slipped. I hit my head. I cut myself. But it wasn't... I didn't think about it more. After that, he received a cut in training and the Swedish MMA Federation said he wasn't able to compete. So Alex's teammate Elia Latifi stepped up and filled in. Now, for Gegard, he pretty much had everything to lose. This was his UFC debut, he was on an insane win streak, and he was supposed to be set up to fight for the title, but now he had to take on a complete nobody and could end his UFC run before it even got started. It's a high-risk fight, you know. Yeah, I don't, I don't have a lot to gain against Gustafsson at the number one spot, maybe. Thankfully, though, Gegard was able to take the sledgehammer all three rounds, dominating with his striking. Alex got a free pass to the title shot, though, and Gegard decided to change weight classes anyway. Number nine, John Jones versus Shogun Hua. Everything about John's early MMA career was just an anomaly, to be honest. He started fighting professionally in 2008, and by the start of 2009, he'd already gone 7-0 and won his UFC debut. It's pretty good for your first year. By 2011, he was already fighting the number one contender, Ryan Bader, who'd also been on a similar UFC upward trajectory, and he was undefeated. John snatched his neck, snatched submission of the night, but then something a little crazy happened. Joe Rogan approached him for the post-fight interview and revealed that his teammate, Rashad Evans, had a knee injury and was out of his title shot against Shogun Hua. He put John on the spot and asked him, will you take that fight? I don't know, man. Sounds pretty risky to me. Working all this time to get to the number one spot, you just had to take out the only other undefeated contender in the division, and now you have to take the title fight on short notice? John didn't miss a beat, though. He accepted the fight and stepped all over Rashad's toes in doing it, but risk or no risk, John has always had the power of belief, and when he walked in there to take out Shogun, well, he looked like the happiest kid in the playground. He also made it look easy, finishing the legend and the champion in the third round, silenced any doubters in the process as well. I mean, John was such a freak athlete back in the day we probably should have seen this one coming but still accepting a short notice title fight literally in your post fight interview sounds like risky business to me number eight vandalay silva the pride heavyweight grand prix I'm probably going to guess that most of you already know who Vandalay Silva is. During the Pride FC era, he was the dominant middleweight champion, he'd beaten all challenges to his belt, and was probably the scariest man in mixed martial arts. After he defended his belt against the only man that had beaten him at middleweight in Pride, Ricardo Arona, we thought life would continue as normal with the axe murderer sitting on his throne of conquered enemies. But he had other plans. In a move that surprised pretty much everyone, he announced he'd be entering the 2006 heavyweight Grand Prix tournament as a replacement for the injured Fedor. Now, this 
was something he did not need to do, but he wanted to test himself, and as a Pride champion, just felt like it was what champions were meant to do. He drew one of the toughest SOBs around for Jida for his first matchup, and actually became the first man to ever TKO him. So that risk actually paid off, but it meant he was fighting Mirko Krokop in the second round. They had fought to a draw four years earlier, but that was when Krokop had only just started in MMA, and he had 22 fights since then. He was also much bigger than Vandy, and he landed his famous head kick, and the axe murderer went to sleep. Mandalay risked his health, his reputation and status as an unbeatable champion, and a future fight against Chuck Liddell in the UFC that wasn't actually allowed to take place as he'd just been KO'd by Mirko. All for the tournament he honestly didn't really need to compete in, he just did it for the love of the game. Number 7, Daniel Cormier versus Anderson Silva. There certainly was a lot of buzz around the former Olympian Daniel Cormier when he arrived into the UFC. He was an undefeated heavyweight wrecking ball who then cut to 205, became John Jones's worst enemy, but ultimately was bested by him at UFC 182. John was then supposed to fight the next challenger, Rumble Johnson, but Jones was stripped of the title after a hit and run. DC and Rumble fought instead for the vacant belt, and DC was the champion there. And he defended it in an epic fight with Alexander Gustafsson and was supposed to fight John again, but had to pull out with an injury. But eventually, at UFC 200, the rematch was booked between DC and John Jones, which was an absolutely massive fight, perfect to headline the historic UFC event. But just three days before the event, John was flagged by USADA and he was removed from the card. DC said he'd take another opponent if it made sense. If anybody would fight, you know, I would fight. I mean, why not? Well, how about Anderson Silva? on two days' notice. Now, remember, at this point, John Jones was the interim champion. The silver fight wasn't going to be for the title, but if he lost to him, who's to say what would have happened? More than that, DC immediately became the bad guy. I'm honored and I'm thankful for Anderson for stepping up, but he's got to get it. He was taken on a beloved legend and got booed before the fight, during the fight, and after wrestling him for three rounds. He was only trying to save UFC 200, pretty much a lose-lose scenario for Cormier, but he took the fight anyway. Number 6, Michael Bisping versus Kelvin Gastelum. After 24 fights in the UFC, Mike Bisping finally achieved what he set out to do. He knocked out Luke Rockhold and was finally a world champion. But after defending the belt at home, he had a bit of a super fight with George St. Pierre, which unfortunately ended with him losing the belt in a fight that he was dropped and choked out. We weren't sure what was next for Bisping, perhaps a few more Legends fights, maybe even retirement. He had commentary, movies, and certainly a lot of issues with his eye, like he didn't have one. But instead of taking some time off, just three weeks later, Anderson Silva failed a USADA test right before his fight with Kelvin Gastelum in China, and Mike volunteered as tribute. Now, some of you might be thinking, his career is nearly over, not exactly a risk, is it? Well, I mean, you tell me. He'd just nearly been knocked out, he couldn't see out of his right eye, and his left was getting worse, and he was taking a fight with a Southpaw KO artist who just finished Vitor Belfort and Tim Kennedy. And it was on three weeks' notice. A quick turnaround would get him back in the title picture, maybe, but Kelvin was on the ascension, was still young and hungry and coming for everything Mike had. Undoubtedly, a legend like Mike Bisping deserved a full camp to train for a proper retirement fight, preferably back home in England, but he lost out on that opportunity as well after risking it all against Kelvin, who finished him in just two and a half minutes. And it would be the last fight of his career, as his good eye was now also having issues. Mike probably feels differently, though. It could have just as easily gone on the other way, I guess. Number five, Pyotr Jan versus Sean O'Malley. So, depending on what kind of UFC fan you are, you might have some pretty strong opinions about this matchup. Aside from the obvious that thinks Sean is taking a massive step up in competition and he could ruin the hype he's already built from himself, there's also something to be said about Jan accepting this fight. Having two losses to the current champion is never a good position to be in the division, but he's going from fighting for the belt to fighting the number 13 guy. 
and you can't tell me that's not risky. Не каждый, в принципе, там боец из топ-5 захочет драться с 13 номером в рейтинге. Это рискованно. Ты там рискуешь свои Okay, if your answer is there's no risk, it'll be easy. It's going to run him down like your dad did with the lawnmower and all the toys you left out in the garden. No, just me then. But if he does lose, where does that leave him? It's going to be hard to get back to the title. You better believe that. Jan has already faced the best at the division and rather than take on another top five challenger, he's going straight for the star power, just like in Smash Bros and aiming to punch the hype out of O'Malley. So yeah, as well as that, Sean's basically going against his own ethos to slowly make his way up the division and from no contesting the number nine ranked guy to fighting the number one contender, it's a risk for sure. Like he's beat some of the best guys in the world and I've got a no contest my best wins a no contest over pedro munoz but i personally think his striking game matches up quite well with yan the pressure if you ask me though is on piota who stands to lose everything he's worked for in the wake of the sugar show number four conor mcgregor versus chad mendez when promoting the Notorious' title fight against Jose Aldo, they went on a literal world tour to Rio de Janeiro, Vegas, Boston, Canada, London, and Dublin. And not only had Dana spent more money promoting it than any other matchup, it had basically become the most anticipated fight in UFC history. And then Aldo got injured, he bruised a rib, and had to pull out. So the biggest fight in MMA history was about to not happen, but so much planning and promotion had already gone into 189. Dana showed up at the Mac Mansion to deliver the bad news, and Connor said he'd literally fight anyone. I'm gonna take another one. Is the, is the question? <laughs> I didn't know that. Was that an option, actually. Which I did. I knew that you would say that. Two weeks until the biggest fight of his career, and Connor just didn't even care who the opponent was. When the word came back, it would be Chad Mendez. It raised even more eyebrows, given he was a wrestler, something Connor had yet to face in the UFC, and it left a big question mark next to his record. Well, it's always been the question: How will he do against a wrestler? Now we answer that question. He hasn't been training for years with Sergey for no reason. So with basically everything to lose, and rather than wait for Aldo, Connor accepted the fight with Mendes. To add more to this, he'd been suffering with an ACL tear all camp, and at least in his words, was on one leg. So he could have pulled out when Aldo did, but he didn't. UFC 189 went ahead with all the bells and whistles, and the short notice fight seemed to work both ways, as in the second round, Mendes gassed, and the notorious one put him away. Still, it could have gone really bad for Connor, and then who the fuck knows how the rest of MMA history would have played out. Number three, Reiner de Ritter versus Angla and Sang 2. So here's a fighter you should be aware of. Outside of the UFC, there have been a couple of undefeated guys who've looked like killers, but Reiner de Ritter has just been something else. Since 2019, the Dutch Knight has picked up six wins in one championship and remains 16-0, undefeated, and the current middleweight and light heavyweight champ champ. That's right. He became the middleweight champion when he choked out An La Ung Sung in the first round. The Burmese Python was the champ champ at the time, and he hadn't lost in three years. After losing to Ridder, he went back to light heavyweight to defend his belt against Vitaly Big Dash, but he tested positive for COVID just a week out, and on six days' notice, yes, six, De Ridder said, yeah, I'll fight him, and stepped into the ring of combat. Now, this was a bit crazy. Derrida was undefeated. The middleweight champion could probably have got a shot at the light heavyweight title if he really wanted anyway, but he put into jeopardy his opportunities outside of one. And honestly, there was absolutely no reason for him to step up and save this event on six days notice, other than he's just a badass, I guess. The fight went all five rounds this time, but when it was over, Derrida was also the light heavyweight champion and earned every bit of those two belts. Number two, Tony Ferguson versus Justin Gaethje. At one point in time, two guys were on a collision course for the lightweight title, Habib Nurmagomedov and Tony Ferguson. Tony won the interim title, but was eventually stripped, and for the fifth time, the UFC tried to make the Eagle versus El Kikui. But this global pandemic thing happened, and Habib couldn't leave Russia. 
So rather than wait for a sixth opportunity and a shot at the actual UFC belt, Tony was offered a fight against the top contender, Justin Gaethje. Tony was on a 12-fight win streak, had beaten everyone the UFC put in front of him. He deserved to fight Habib, and then just 11 days before the event on April 18th, Dana announced it would be postponed until May 9th. But Tony, being Tony, decided to cut weight and make weight on April 17th anyway, which actually gave quite a few people cause for concern because you're cutting weight twice when he really didn't have to. But when you're talking about having everything to lose, this was the literal definition. Number one contender, 12 fight win streak, completely locked in as the next guy to fight for the belt, but he accepted the challenge Justin Gaethje brought and unfortunately the fight didn't go his way. Justin pretty much outstruck him across four rounds before finishing him in the fifth. Tony risked it all to keep alive UFC 249 amid pandemic and Justin just proved to be the better man. Number one, Francis Ngannou versus Cyril Garn. No sooner had the predator of the heavyweight division captured UFC gold, an interim title fight was already being scheduled with his former training partner Cyril Garn claiming the belt. Francis had to return to Cameroon and wasn't able to be ready when the UFC wanted, which led to a breakdown in the relationship with himself and Dana White. Some MMA media and fans even believed the UFC was deliberately pressuring Francis. But there was even more risk involved. He was on the last fight of his contract, one that he wasn't particularly happy with. I will not fight for five, six hundred thousand anymore. I mean, it's over. But he still accepted the fight with Garn anyway, even if it meant a loss could see him removed from the UFC entirely. He was effectively in a promotional war with the establishment. More than that, he was also nursing a serious MCL tear, one that had his coach, Eric Nixick, begging him to pull out of the fight. Myself, um, Dewey, Martel, we all suggested that he should, wow. that we didn't think it was the right move to take this fight. But Francis felt it was his moment to make a statement and remind people that he was the champion. Truth was, there was a lot on the line for the new champion. Aside from the usual pressure that comes with his first title defense, I mean, has anyone ever had more on their shoulders going into a title fight? I don't think so. He beat Garn across five rounds and cemented his place as the undisputed heavyweight champion. But what's actually happening with Francis and when will he fight next? I mean, who the heck even knows? Yeah, don't ask me why a bunch of these fighters took these fights. I mean, Risky doesn't even come close for some of them. But you know what's not Risky? Checking out Ben Rosette's music. You heard his song in the intro. I know you love it. Go check him out on Spotify and on social media at Ben Rosette. Comment then, after going through this list, who would you give the Balls of Steel trophy to? Hey, who's got the most cojones? Who took the Risky? fight let me know in the comments down below and give us a thumbs up because you know we worked hard on this one i hope you enjoyed it thank you and go ahead and subscribe if you want to see more from us we do free videos every single week i've been Balian. you can follow me here boom see you in the next one